Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. So, A History of Christian Theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams and Tom Velasco. All right. Welcome back to A History of Christian Theology. This is the second half of the conversation that Tom and I had last week on the Epistle of Barnabas and Didache, two early 2nd century writings probably written while Trajan or possibly Hadrian were the emperors of Rome. Next week we'll be looking at the Epistle to Diogenetus and uh, the fragments of Papias. We are now on Stitcher and in the iTunes store, so review us, rate us, like us, and get the word out about the podcast. Uh, We recently have also created a Facebook page, and we appreciate all of our listeners uh, and people who are, have liked that page, our supporters. We have nearly 200 already. And it, also apologies for the Potomatic problem early this week. We overloaded our bandwidth. Um, so we're now averaging somewhere around 75 to 100 downloads a day. So thank you all very much. And here's a quick summary of the Didache. We will continue to update links for other authors like... Um, Epistle to Diogenetus and Papias later, uh, so check on the blog, if you would, for those writings if you'd like to read them along with us, or if you have any questions. The Didache, though, is probably the early, uh, earlier of the two works between the Epistle of Barnabas and the Didache, uh, which just means teachings in Greek. It was probably written in the late 1st century or early 2nd century. It has also been called the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles in reference to the fact that it is meant to summarize at this very early period, what the gospel looked like and what the apostles taught the early followers of Jesus and what their assemblies or church gatherings looked like. In Greek, the word for church also means assembly. And these early church groups appear to have rituals and rites established very early on that emerged straight out of the gospels and the epistles of Paul. These plans for their meetings, what are effectively early sketches of the first liturgy, are the focus of the Didache. Unlike our individual American mindset, these early Christians met together often and lived their lives together, often sharing all that they had in order that no one should be hungry. Schisms or breaks within the community uh, were not only bad for the church, but meant early Christians, they left what was now their new family. So if there was a, a problem in the church, a schism, it was like losing family members and being estranged from brother or sister or mother or father. The first six chapters deal with the actions of the early community. They should love one another, pursue good, keep the commandments, care for the widow and orphan, and share all that they have. Action takes precedence over thinking. In chapter seven, the unknown writer directs the community on the way to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord's prayers repeat in chapter 8, adding only for yours is the power and the glory forever, which is a standard part of the Protestant and English form of the Lord's prayer known to most Christians. Matthew and Luke happen to leave out that ending and differ on the debtors versus sinners, where the Didache follows Matthew using debtors. 
Some instruction for the Eucharist is given in 9 that does not seem to have the same literal interpretation of the body and blood as Ignatius, but clearly stresses the centrality of this mystery in their gatherings. The author proceeds to instruct on the nature of true and false, false prophets, condemning the prophet who neither practices what he preaches nor gives money to the poor rather than to himself. It would seem that many health and wealth gospel preachers would do well to heed this word. He ends with a prophetic message about the urgency of the coming of the Lord, quoting heavily from the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark. Now here's my conversation with Tom. Yeah, let's get on to the Didache. One thing again, guys, when you come to these writings, people were jockeying in antiquity to gain authority in their debates. And so it's pretty common that you'll come across a letter or something written that describes itself to one of the apostles when it was not written by one of the apostles. The Epistle of Barnabas is probably one of those letters. Uh, the Didache can be equally misleading uh, because the Didache, uh, it really, the word Didache just means the teachings, which Chad pointed out, um, but it's often called the teachings of the Twelve Apostles, again, kind of letting credence to its, to its uh, content. Um, it's implying that people should believe it just because it's what the apostles taught. Again, we don't know if the apostles uh, actually had any hand in, well, we're, certain they, we're, we're pretty certain they didn't have any hand in writing it. We don't know how much of the content of this, um, of this uh, set of writings actually goes back to the apostles, though. Yeah, and to reiterate, um, this is probably written around 100. Most scholars think this is around 100. So it's possible that this is either just after some of the writings of the New Testament or maybe before, uh, but at least at, towards the very end. Uh, but right right around that time, and, and I look at this as kind of a manual, a kind of how-to book uh, for certain services uh, that will go on in the, uh, in the early church. Uh, which you know, I think I said in the intro is ecclesia, which is the assembly, um, and it's this these gathered Christians when they gather together, when they come together, what do they do? Um, and the Didache provides us some of those early um, examples and maybe forms um, of how what they w- what they would do. Yeah, good. And actually, I'm glad you said that because the one thing I really wanted to get into, and and I think this is the kind of thing that our listeners will really connect with, I think. Um, and that is that he writes, a, or in the Didache, there's a little section concerning baptism. It's chapter 7. Uh, and I just want to read through it, because he goes through and he talks about the mode of baptism. He says, uh, first of all, when you baptize, you baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'd like to point out that there are some Christian traditions that actually uh, for whatever reason, have broken off and don't follow what what is called the Trinitarian formula of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Some people say instead, when you baptize, say baptize, you baptize into the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, which both of these are rooted in scriptural uh, passages. Um, uh, there are passages such as in Matthew, uh, at the end of Matthew, when Jesus says to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in Acts, it talks about baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ, so you have both, so there's contention with there with that. But here we see this is an early practice. They actually say this is what you're supposed to do. And then it says this. if uh, it, it says to do that in living water, which I find a very interesting quote. Chad, do you have any thoughts on what it means by living water? 
Yeah, uh, Hudor Zone. Um, it's interesting. The translation that I have actually just calls it running water. Um, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. So that's uh, that, that's what I mean. It. Is, I mean, the Greek is zone. I mean, it, it is. Can I, can I say really quickly? Your translation makes way more sense because listen to the context. So he says, "Baptize into running water," and then it says, "If you do not have running water, then baptize into other water." But if you cannot in cold, then in warm. Okay, so he's so he's basically putting a, a hierarchy of what the best kind of water to to baptize into is. So clearly, they say the best is into like a river with running water. If not, then still water. It's better for it to be warm. But if you don't have it, then make it cold. This is what I find the most interesting. If you do not, um, if you cannot put into cold water, then warm. If you have not either. Pour out water three times upon the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's interesting because it seems as if this is endorsing immersion, baptism. And then it's saying, if you don't have water in which you can immerse, then it's fine to pour water on the head. Now, again, this is important, I think, uh, and, and the kind of question I can see our listeners uh, raising, because I, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would ask themselves, why do liturgical churches typically pour or sprinkle water rather than immerse? And um, this is the first time amongst the writings that we've come across where there's any reference to a mode of baptism. So anyway, throw that out there. Yeah, and so the Episcopal churches, the more liturgical churches, baptize with water. They pour it over um and, and they on the head exactly as it's described. But as Tom rightly points out, I mean, you know, <laughs> any of these churches could find running water. I used to work at an Episcopal church on the Delaware River. Um, and, uh, you know, they, there was plenty of running water there, uh, but we didn't go out to that river. We just stayed in the service. And uh, and I actually I think we probably used warm water uh, as well. Actually, we did. It, you know, so it's just like, well, you know, we. We 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 just jump to this next this last bit and just go eh let's do the pouring water, but they also <laughs> and then at the very end they're supposed to baptize before you fast, uh, which is when I was baptized as a Baptist as a child I did not I was not told to fast and neither did the person baptizing me fast. Yeah, and I don't you know I don't know exactly when the transition came. But historically, the time is going to come when baptism, the primary or prominent mode of baptism in the church, will not be immersion, but it will be pouring or sprinkling. And so this is the first reference to pouring at all, but it's looked at in this section, and at this time, I don't know if this was universal at the time or what, but it's looked at in this section as being a um, an allowance. You allow pouring, but the preferred mode is immersion. Um, I don't know when that change came historically. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to flush that out for you as we, as we read through our theologians over the course of the next and we could take this And we could take this moment to talk about when someone is baptized, right? So there's no, there's no uh, pedo-baptism. There's no baptism of children yet as far as we know, you know, babies. Um, it, you know, it seems to be believers baptism. I mean, I, you know, you're not going to get a baby to fast. Um, and so it yeah. seems, 
and so that you know that's going to come along later. Uh, but you know, we have in the at least by the fourth century, you have traditions of people. Constantine, um, the most famous example, um, waiting until their death to be baptized. So there, you know, and we could talk about how a lot of these Christians thought that. Um, you know, you wanted to wait till the very end to be baptized. And it, might, it actually seems that Augustine is one of the first to reverse this trend to go early again. Um, but, you know, we'll, we can look at that a little later. But Yeah, there's a funny, the- there's a whole bunch of funny theology that ends up popping up historically into different uh, uh, beliefs about baptism. For instance, with the Constantine uh, reference, it seems that Constantine and people who waited till the end of their lives to get baptized, did so because they were scared of falling into severe sin after being baptized, because they thought that if they fell into severe sin, they would essentially forfeit their salvation and not gain entrance to heaven. Uh, so it's a very, very strange theology that goes there. Augustine will flip that on its head and say, no, we need to baptize right away because baptism is what washes away your original sin and you have no way of getting in without uh, without baptism. So and, there isn't a lot more that's said theologically on baptism, uh, but it's just, uh, you know, interesting, their practice. Well, it's in, and, and if you look at the flow of how this is written, the baptism part comes in, ver- in chapter 7. The first five, um, five to six uh, chapters of the Didache, the first five or six pages, deal primarily with action, with um, with how the Christians should live. Um, and he talks about a path of life and a path of death, which actually makes these, uh, the epistle of Barnabas and the Didache fit together nicely. Barnabas mentions these same two choices. Um, I looked at it, it's kind of an early Robert Frost, right? Uh, two roads diverge in the wood. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so in the path of death is evil. It's filled with murders, adulteries, immoralities, robberies, um, false testimonies. Um, and then it goes on. This I think this is fascinating. Um, murderers of children and corruptors of what God has fashioned, who turn their backs on the needy, the oppressed, the afflicted, and support the wealthy. They are lawless judges of the impoverished, altogether sinful, uh, be delivered children from such people. So there's the ne- there's the sort of standard list of negative acts um, that we see, uh, and then there's this in, uh, emphasis on what you should do, um, or well, at least or what they've failed to do. I guess in the in the path of death, they murder children, corrupt what God has fashioned. They do not. They turn their back on the needy and the oppressed, and and support the wealthy. Uh, you could definitely read uh, a sort of um, you know social justice uh, outlook in this passage. Um, By the way, are you in chapter two there? That's chapter five. Okay, because I was reading another one in chapter two, um, where he talks about gross sin being forbidden, and it's essentially the same kind of thing: don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't commit. Uh, uh, you know, actually, pederasty mentions fornication, don't steal, uh, don't practice magic or witchcraft. And then it says, don't murder a child by abortion, which is why I thought that, which is what I thought you'd reference before. Is that actually in the Greek, abortion? Is there a word for that? Poneras u klepses u pharmacasus. I do love this. Um, <laughs> you should not engage in uh, pharmacasus, which is the word where we get pharmacy. Um, <laughs> so yep. you, you might you might think we're not supposed to go to pharmacies. Yeah, but it does mean witchcraft. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Well, it just says phonesus uh, technon in Thora. So it's just the killing of the children um, in, a, in, a, in a young state. Yeah. So actually, it'd be kind of good to stop here for a second. There's one thing that I do kind of sometimes have a pet peeve about. It's when people act as if the moral, I don't know, well-being of our of our civilization now is so much worse than it's ever been. And um, one thing I'll say is, it, yeah, it's bad, but people, uh, according to scriptures, have a sin nature. And and there has always been immorality. And the, the Christian writers that we're reading are writing into their distinctive culture. And so you have to understand that First and second century Rome, uh, especially in the East, like in the Greek-speaking areas, you have these practices that really, like, it's a totally different way of thinking. It's a, a totally different mindset uh, from what we have today. And um, certainly in those days, like, like I said here in Chapter 2, he mentions things that people ought not practice. It mentions pederasty. That was something that was legal and sanctioned uh, in the ancient world, right? And so Christians are here standing up and saying, look it. That's a horrible thing, and we have to oppose that on social grounds. Um, my translation said, don't murder a child by abortion. Chad said that it says, well, just a young child is what it's really saying. I don't know to what degree abortion was even possible back then. They certainly wouldn't have the medical advances we have today. But it was a common practice for people to leave unwanted children just out in the woods uh, to be killed by the elements. And so here... Uh, Christians are taking a very strong social justice stance, um, which is going to look different from the ones we take today because the issues that they faced are different uh, from the issues we face today. It's not that things are worse now. They're just different. Uh, it's a different culture with a different mindset, different way of thinking. Um, but you do see here that the, uh, the Didache tells us as Christians that we have to have this strong impulse to oppose... Um, to oppose wickedness and to stand for the weak and uh, to to fight injustice and things of that nature. Yeah, and it's always hard, you know, we have to make decisions, I guess, in our lives. Um, what is worth fighting for to us or what is going to be an issue uh, that we're going to take a stand on. However, it is clear they were very little concerned with anybody with power, with wealth, uh, with affluence. The people that they mentioned are children, are slaves, are widows, are orphans. I mean, these are all the lowest of society. And we're gonna we're gonna slowly get to Justin Martyr um, and some of these more in intellectual form of Christians who are gonna try to make Christianity seem appealing to uh, a more literate um, strata of society. But here, their primary concern are children who are of very little value, um, as far as we can tell, from in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and so they look at the purity of children, I mean, as a position that Christ took, um, and, and they continue that. Uh, so pederasty is forbidden because it, it destroys the purity of the child, uh, exposing the child on the hillside. And my favorite part about the early Christian stories, there are multiple references to ancient material that we have that this was one of the things that uh, the Romans hated um, and that was very important to the Christians was not only uh, saying that we shouldn't abort children, but they go and rescue uh, those children, right? So it's not just don't kill them. 
it's give them life. And so these, you know, another part of this passage uh, for of what's described as wickedness is not sharing what you have. Um, these communities, like in Acts 4, um, they held their wealth in common, it says, right? Um, and so not only is there scriptural from Acts, but we also see in the Didache where they continued to, you know, basically, I think I mentioned this in my intro, uh, but their whole community was the church. Everything that they did depended on this group. So if they didn't have money, if they didn't have food, they had to get it from the church. Uh, there was no um, welfare state, none of this sort of thing, uh, at least as we know it today. Um, so they utterly and totally depended on their communities um, to provide for them and for each other. So, you know, these are um, – and, and this is, you know, like I, I, we've been talking a lot about divisions and schism. This is why schism's so bad. It's not just, you know, for me, like – I didn't like the way that my pastor preached when I was growing up. I could just go down the street and find a new one. Um, there might not be another Christian community around. Um, and I, and, and I also, my primary, you know, social grouping was my family. Uh, but for a lot of these early Christians, they're leaving their families to go to the church and relying upon the church first. Um, and so if they, if there's schism, if there's breaking of those communities, it is the family. It is the very safety net that these people have that they're losing. Yeah, I would like to add to that too. Um, there's no call in here to oppose the social uh, – or not social – to oppose the political powers of the day. They're not sitting here saying, hey, guys, let's get a group together and go down and march on whatever. And, and how horrible is Caesar? Because Caesar is endorsing these various things that we're opposed to. They're not involved in that way. Uh, as Chad said, they're very proactive as a community themselves. Are there babies being left out um, uh, you know, in the hills to die? We're going to go out and we're going to rescue those children. We are going to be proactive in being the justice that is needed uh, in this world. And, and I think that, you know, obviously that's going to look different today from how it looked back then, but uh, I really admire the sense of otherworldliness that the early Christians had. They, yeah, I mean, they didn't like it when their government made decisions that, uh, that didn't mesh with their own worldview, but they weren't going to sit there and whine about it, or nor did they have this sense of entitlement that the government owed them a certain thing. This same group of Christians did not complain when the government was proactively seeking them out and killing them. Right. Uh, rather, they were going out and saying, we are going to do what is right. And 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 they, in fact, looked at... The, I, I don't even know the sense in which they even thought much of the government at all. I think rather they thought of the individuals. I think they thought of people, and they said, we're going to love these people regardless of, of kind of what their political stances are and where they're at and what have you. And as Tom knows, I am deeply suspicious of schismatics. So uh, when I saw <laughs> when I saw that word come up again uh, in this literature, I I took note. Um, it's one of my favorite stories from seminary. A professor I had, uh, we were listening to a new form of Anglicanism. There's a new uh, branch, and I don't want to get into all that, but basically a new kind of church was forming, and my professor said, I view you as deeply schismatic, um, and he was this uh, Episcopalian, you know, British uh, Anglican, and and he was very concerned of of why this new church was forming in America, um, and and he was quite upset uh, that they were uh, taking this action. 
So deeply schismatic is a uh, is a fear that I often have. As Tom is quick to point out, though, it's not as if the Anglicans have a tradition that goes all the way back to the apostles themselves. <laughs> yeah, and and just so you know, I have a number of friends, by the way, who are part of those those that schismatic group. <laughs> who some of them might be tuning in. That's a, this is a fun little back and forth that Chad and I have. I'm. Uh, it seems to me that we're all schismatics at this point. I mean, ever since, oh, about, uh, well, at least 15, 17, right? I mean, since the Protestant Reformation, but uh, it goes back further, right? When was the Great Schism? Do you remember the year? 10, 15, well, it's 1040, something, 1044, maybe? No, that's the fall of, uh, not, yeah, mid, mid-11th century. 1054. So the Great oh, 10, Schism 50. 1054. So we're all schismatics since 1054, Every one of us, Catholics too, and Eastern Orthodox, we all schismed. Um, well, and when, and actually, that's one thing we can look at even earlier. Uh, by 451, you have schism over uh, views of the nature of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, there there are breaking offs that are happening all the time. But um, so let's the one the other. So we've got we've talked about baptism. So you have a right way to live, which we've just highlighted. Then we. Then the Dirge gives us some uh, instruction for baptism. And then next is the Eucharist um, or maybe another kind of feast. Um, this is not 100% clear. Or Oh, actually, I, no, I wanted to look at uh, – well, I highlighted in the intro, but in 8, we have a repetition of the Lord's Prayer. And so it should be noted uh, the Gospels are rife throughout this uh, through the Didache. They, they're looking back. It seems that they're reading at least Matthew, uh, maybe, you know, Matthew and Mark uh, are sort of everywhere quoted here. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Can I make a comment on the Lord's Prayer actually here? Yeah. It's, it, it, I basically want to kind of briefly, mm, I don't know if challenge is the right word, but maybe challenge something you said in your intro. You said that, that here we have an addition on the Lord's Prayer uh, that isn't in the Gospels uh, when it says, um, uh, Thine is the power and the glory forever, which, of course, various versions of Matthew do indeed have that in the Gospel, right? So if, if, if our readers, and our readers may not, or not our readers, our listeners may not be familiar with debates of textual criticism, but essentially, just to, without going into a lot of detail, there's a lot of debate about which texts are the most reliable ones uh, from which to reconstruct the New Testament. Like which early manuscripts, early handwritten copies are most reliable, that is closest to the originals. And um, I, I think it would be a good thing for us to spend a lot of time talking about. But if our readers read from a King James Bible or a New King James Bible or, um, you know, any text that is based off of uh, the received traditional text that is used in the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Erasmian, uh, Erasmus's Textus Receptus, they're going to have that section in it. It will be in it. If you use an NIV, an ESV, a New American Standard, that section will not be in it. Um, and so that's a part of the debate. I actually take the inclusion here as a bit of evidence that the received text is correct. Um, because they no doubt didn't just add it on. There must be at least, whether it's correct or not, there at least is textual justification way back when this was written that would include that as part of the Lord's Prayer. So all that to say, this is a big debate that 
that a lot of Christians fight over, you know, I, I think you're fine whichever scripture, whether you use NIV, ESV, New American Standard, New King James, they're all closely, they're very, very close, but there are some discrepancies between them. Yeah, so that's a, it's a fair point. Um, I, you know, it's just, I thought it was interesting reading it here. Also, when I, when we say the Lord's Prayer in Latin, we actually leave off the the ending there, for thine is the power and the glory forever and ever, um, which, like, at an Episcopal church, we, we include that ending um, where I regularly attend, but um, when I pray in Latin, uh, yeah, we actually leave that part off. Uh, it's not in the, in the Vulgate? I don't know if it's in the Vulgate, but it's not in the Roman Rite. Okay, so there's the Lord's Prayer, uh, which was interesting to repeat. Again, all of these things, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I want to I want to be able to use the word liturgy, uh, which is a Greek compound word, as far as we can tell, with comes from laus uh, ergon, uh, which is for the the work of the people. Um, but it's 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 a liturgy is just a word that's used um, for it's sort of an order of service. I used to think my Baptist church didn't have a liturgy. But, you know, as I – we just didn't call it that. It was called a bulletin. Um, and in the bulletin, uh, we sang songs. Our pastor preached. We passed the uh, offering plate, and we gave a closing prayer, and we all left. That is a liturgy. Um, that's how the church goes. But here – so we see, you know, in the, the liturgy as presented by the Didache, we have the, the baptism, the Lord's Prayer. And then uh, in Chapter 9, with respects to the Thanksgiving meal – Literally, uh, Eucharistias, uh, you shall give thanks, uh, Eucharisteseta, uh, as follows, asate. And so, you know, what we, you know, so Eucharist is just from the Greek word, which is good grace. So to give thanks, to give good grace, and, and it's a way of thanking God and then sharing this meal, uh, which, you know, we know comes from uh, the Last Supper. Uh, anything stick out to you about the way that the Eucharist is discussed here? The one thing I found of interest here, um, especially as I think of modern evangelical churches, he puts one definite requirement for being able to partake of the Eucharist. Uh, and just kind of the, also to piggyback of what Chad said a moment ago, I mean, there are lots of different terms we use for this, right? We call it communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. There are a lot of different phrases we throw out. Eucharist just really ultimately means Thanksgiving. And so there's one, the big thing I wanted to highlight here is there seems to be one requirement that he puts on being able to partake of the Eucharist, that is to take part in communion. And that is that one has to have been baptized into the name of the Lord. Uh, in other words, if one is not baptized, then he cannot partake of communion or partake of the Eucharist. And that is, a, that is a tradition that has always held throughout the history of the church until relatively recently. Like I would say probably like the 1930s maybe uh, when certain evangelical traditions uh, said, well, as long as you're really a Christian, you can take communion. Uh, you don't have to be baptized. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of theological stuff that goes into that kind of a statement. But basically... It is a universal thing historically. If you have not been baptized, you do not take um, the Eucharist. In fact, the word mass, like people often think of the Catholic mass, that term comes from the Latin word misa, which means to be sent out. And so the idea was, early in church history, if you had not been baptized, you were sent out of the church when the time came to take uh, communion. So that's one thing. The second thing I would say about um, about the Eucharist that's mentioned here is it does seem to be a meal rather than like a wafer and a little thimble full of 
wine. It seems to be a true meal where you eat uh, where you eat together and you are satiated. You're full and you drink wine together. So that seems to be a part of what they did early on in uh, church history. It wasn't just a little thing that you would come forward and and partake of. It was something that you would partake of at a table as if you were having a meal together, fostering that sense of community. Right, yeah, the, in, verse, or in chapter 10, and when you've had enough to eat, you should give thanks as follows. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Which nobody has ever said, oh, I'm stuffed <laughs> after uh, partaking of the wafer and thimble. Well, and right. I know that we're running, it's, there's just so much richness, but, you know, we one may- thing Tom often talks about from his evangelical perspective, and I still, you know, consider myself one who's committed to the gospel, so I could still be evangelical, maybe not the same way that he means it. For sure. I certainly didn't mean to uh, imply you weren't evangelical in that sense. But the uh, in the Episcopal Church that I go to, we actually still pray part of this prayer, and which in chapter 10, he says – and you graciously provided us with the spiritual food and drink. And so, and at the end of the prayer, at the end of the Eucharist at my Episcopal church, we, we say, we thank you, Lord, for feeding us with the spiritual food and drink. And the idea of the spiritual food, I mean, it doesn't have to mean that it is not physically the body and the blood, but it definitely leads, leads and, and um, looks towards maybe not what Catholics believe, you know, which is transubstantiation if you're actually eating christ's body and blood um but episcopalians are very typically non-committal um and this kind of thing and, and so we we just say well hey thanks you've graciously graciously provided us with this spiritual food and drink you know where well is it actually is it not eh, maybe maybe not but uh you know we get the set you know that but i you know i just love that this some of this from the Didache is 1900 years old prayer that uh, that we pray after communion. There's parts of it that I mean it, it's a it gets a long way to Archbishop Cranmer and the creation of the Book of Common Prayer, which you know we'll get to by the time we're 50. Um, but uh, yeah. So one thing I wanted to address really quickly: uh, the Didache acknowledge makes a couple of interesting observations concerning offices within the Church. So. In the past, we've talked about bishops, uh, presbyters, and deacons. Interestingly, the Didache only acknowledges acknowledges bishops and deacons, which might actually uh, fall into one view that bishops and presbyters were the same thing, which I've heard you know certain people argue that, that presbyter was just a term of respect. Uh, that is, you refer to a person in that position as an elder, so you look up to him as an elder. Episcopos, or bishop, is the title. So I think it's interesting. He only acknowledges bishop, or the Didache only acknowledges bishops and deacons, uh, making no mention of presbyters as a distinct office in the church. The second thing is, is it makes mention of these this three these three groups uh, that we haven't talked about yet. These three groups are referenced in Romans, Ephesians, and First Corinthians when there's a discussion about spiritual gifts. Uh, but this is the first time we've seen it expounded upon at all. And that is, there's a section talking about teachers, apostles, and prophets. Uh-huh. And it's very interesting because it seems to use the word apostle a little differently uh, from the way we typically use it. It doesn't seem to be in reference to one of the 12 apostles or Paul or one of these people who have seen the Lord. It seems to make reference to a traveling missionary of some kind, uh, somebody who seems to be a leader in the church and who is responsible for maybe church planting. 
but one thing's clear, he's itinerant, and he, he, he's not allowed to stay in one place for too long. Uh, and then um, you have prophets who they liken to Old Testament prophets, that is, people who seem to speak the word of God uh, to people. And then you have teachers who uh, presumably are people who instruct uh, in the Bible. The one thing that the Didache is committed to with all three of these people, which uh, kind of shows just how early abuses popped up in the church, is the Didache is committed to making sure that nobody allows these guys to be lazy loafers who sit around and eat their food. They basically say, look, if, they, if an apostle comes to town, let him stay with you, but no more than three days. And if he asks you for money, send him away. It, it seems pretty clear that early on there were a number of people who were essentially using the gospel as a means of making money, getting wealthy, I don't know, rich, but basically they were taking advantage of people for the sake of the gospel. And obviously that is something that holds true even today. Uh, actually, not even today, it's compounded today. But it seems like the, the Didache was committed to saying, don't let these guys mooch money off of you. Um, you make sure that they're faithful and they're doing their job. Have nothing to do with them if they're just in it for money. You know, his his sort of condition for a good uh, for a true prophet is one who practices what he preaches, and then and then who also yeah who says do not listen to anyone who says in the spirit give me money or something else. But if he tells you to give to others in need, let no one judge him. Um, which this is a side note about the funny thing about this podcast coming up. If you look at related podcasts. Joel Osteen is a related podcast to ours on iTunes, as is Joyce Meyer and a few other people. Now, I don't know as much about Joyce Meyer, and but it just seems that Joel Osteen is, you know, the new face of the health and wealth gospel, um, you know, which is the same sort of thing. Like he's making himself rich um, off of the backs of people who listen to him. I mean, it may not be as egregious as what happens in places like Kenya, but the idea that one should profit um, off of the gospel is just abhorrent to me. And apparently it's a problem that is as old as the early gatherings of these churches. Now, you know, the difficulty is, is we're going to have to, you know, talk about the the fine line between, you know, they're, they're supposed to be able to have food and have something to eat. And, you know, I, I'm not against the pastor making a living. At what point does it become, what's the right word? At what point is it, what, what point are they, um, stealing or what point abusing their power um that kind of thing you know that's that's a hard line but i i don't want us to be connected with people like joel osteen uh and the health and wealth gospel but yeah one thing i can i'd like to add too i mean i think you're going to find with chad trevor and i we're going to try to be pretty amenable to people from different backgrounds and different groups and we're going to try be a little open-minded in our discussions but I can say there is nothing uh, that I think that is more abhorrent or just blasphemous and terrible than the prosperity gospel. This notion that, that we're supposed to believe God to make us rich and that we're supposed to give money for the sake of lining the pockets of rich pastors and teachers I mean, it is an abomination. I mean, it is just the worst. There's, I have no room for that. Uh, I will say, I mean, with Joel Osteen, I mean, I don't know. I know the guy has a lot of money. I've never listened to him preach, so I can't really say what, to what degree he preaches health and wealth or whatever. I don't know. But I do know that those preachers are out there. I've heard them, and definitely 
as far back as the Didache, back to the first century, it tells you, have nothing to do with these people. Yeah. Um, that, that one, like I said, it annoys me too. Actually, it's funny. As soon as I said it, speaking about our open-mindedness, I was like, I wonder if Tom's going to try to talk me off of this a little bit, um, you know, talk me down from this. Cause I, you know, we, I want to be charitable as much as I can. Uh, but like I said, the, you know, usually these health and wealth gospels, preachers prey on poor and needy. If you give me money, you'll be trusting in God or, and then, you know, you will eventually become risk rich and they take the last dime, um, you know, so that they can wear leather skin boots and drive around in a limousine. And well, there's another mention of the Lord's day, you know, on the Lord's own day, when you gather together, break bread and give thanks after you've confessed your unlawful deeds, that your sacrifice may be pure. Part of the service that we have in, in uh, the Episcopal Church is the passing of the peace. Um, and it seems like, you know, it's possible that that passing of the peace is actually part of what is described here, which is reconciling, um, you know, making, you know, you confess your sin, um, which we do, and then we pass the peace, um, and the priest absolves us of our sin. And, you know, we, you know, so there's a reconciliation that happens between one another, um, and between God. And then we go to the Eucharist table. Yeah. And I don't really have much to say about the peace, but I would add uh, you know, again here, first, second, early second century reference to the fact that Christians gather on Sunday. Again, for those of you who don't remember, the Lord's Day is the day that Christ resurrected. It's Sunday. So Christians are, are gathering on Sundays very early on. I would also add that in the letter to Barnabas, Barnabas has a whole chapter devoted to why Christians celebrate on Sunday and not on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Uh, he actually says that Christians rightfully worship on the eighth day, which is the day of new beginnings and the day of resurrection and the day of, uh, of Christ's uh, coming back from the dead. And so, again, this idea that we uh, worship uh, on Sunday goes way, way back to the very earliest reaches uh, of church history. All right. That's all I've got, I think. Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Please check our blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com and let us know if you have any questions, comments, and any ways that we can help make this podcast more enjoyable for our listeners. Next week, we will have Ben Horseman on to talk about the Papias Fragments and the Epistle to Diagonetus. See you then.